Well, we're, we're going to look tonight at the Gospel of John. We've been doing that for the last 98, 99 uh, Sundays or so with breaks, and uh, we've been following the story. Uh, we've been through John's Gospel to the end, so we've followed the storyline of the, the Gospel. But when you're reading the Bible, it's important not simply to follow the story, which we do from Genesis right through to Revelation. We follow the developing storyline of God's dealings with humanity. So it's, it's not only important to read along the story of the Bible, it's also important to be able to read through the Bible, that is, through the thickness of the Bible, not just along the storyline, but through the thickness of the Scripture. And that's what we're going to do tonight on uh, the first of two uh, sermons on the subject of the missions of God. It's uh, incorrectly uh, singular in in, uh, the bulletin. I think that's because nobody would believe I was talking about the missions of God. But the Gospel of John talks about the missions of God, God the Father, not, not God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. The name John Newton is may, may be familiar to you. John Newton was a slave trader. He was converted, and then he devoted his life to the abolition of the slave trade. But he was also known as a minister and an author. He wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. But he wrote another hymn that you don't know so well that goes like this, What, what Think You of Christ? is the test. To try both your state and your scheme, you cannot be right in the rest until you think rightly of Him. By state, he was referring to what relationship you're in with God. What is your state? Are you in Christ or out of Christ? Do you have life? Do you not have life? Are you saved or are you not saved? Your scheme, the second word, has to do with how we think about God, how we think about Christ. Our thinking is not right unless we think rightly of Him. And it's in thinking rightly about God in Christ that the writer, John the Apostle, is very concerned at the very end of the book. For example, he says this, these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So, at the very end of the book, he tells us why he wrote it is what? That so you might come to know Christ, the Messiah, and that you might understand that the Messiah, Jesus, is in fact the Son of God. There is no matter, in other words, more central to the Christian faith more fundamental to our knowledge of God than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as we come back to John, what we're going to do is now go look through the gospel and ask ourselves a question, what what has John taught us? What has John taught us about Christ? And the answer is, on the surface at least, that he has that He has shown us that it is through Christ and the Holy Spirit, through the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
that we see God in action. We see the missions of God in the world, here in our temporal creature, creaturely reality. We see God at work. And it's in viewing the missions of God, the Son and the Spirit, that we see into the nature of God and discover the nature of God is Trinity. In the flow of the Bible, God, first of all, introduces Himself to God, to Himself, in the general sense. We discover all about His attributes. We look at the Old Testament. We find that God is righteous. God is holy. God is good. God is mighty. God is almighty. God is gracious. God is, God is just. We, we see Him dealing with Israel, and in His dealings with Israel, He's showing them more and more about Himself, that He's big, that He's that is incomprehensible, ultimately, that He is fire and light and so on. We see all of these metaphors used, all of these attributes described. We learn all of that from the Old Testament. God is one. There are not multiple gods. There is one God. All of that is revealed in the Old Testament. It's only when we come to the New Testament with the person of Jesus Christ and with His resurrection in particular that we begin to see that not only is God one, but God is three in one, that there is in the identity of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Shema sums up the lesson, the revealed nature of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. If you listen very carefully to the Shema, there are three references to God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. Now, you would glide past that. What is significant about that? Nothing in the Old Testament makes it significant except here's a threefold repetition of the name of God. It's not expanded on until you get to the New Testament. And in Matthew, we're going to go out and we're to baptize people into the Christian faith in the singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. So, although there are many allusions to the Trinity throughout the Scripture, it's only with the coming of the Lord Jesus that it begins to make sense. Here's what one recent author says, Fred Sanders, in his book, The Triune God. God did not openly proclaim the existence of His Son and Holy Spirit and then send them, but rather He sent them. God did not announce in advance the Trinity, rather the Son of the Father turned up with their spirit. The Son of the Father turned up with their spirit. That's what we find happening at the baptism of Jesus. There's Jesus, turns up to be baptized, and the Father and the Spirit appear, make themselves known as Jesus comes uh, to be our Savior and to take His place among us to be our Redeemer. The early church then came to know God the Father because they had met God the Son and experienced God the Holy Spirit. The early church learned to know God through Jesus Christ whom God had sent. If you look at John's Gospel, there's a great emphasis on the Son who has been sent into the world and the Spirit who has been sent by the Father into the world. It is their sending and their mission to tell us this last piece of the puzzle about God 
the one God who is one and three and three in one. And it was the resurrection of Jesus that, in a sense, threw the switch that made the lights go on in the minds of the apostles. We saw that when we were near the end of John's gospel after the resurrection. Jesus appears to the apostles. You remember on the very first day, the day of resurrection, in the evening, He comes and He meets with the apostles in the upper room, and one of them is missing. Thomas is missing. Thomas, who's always asking awkward questions. Thomas, who's always asking the question that nobody else uh, wants to ask, but everybody is thinking. Thomas is not there. And they tell Thomas that they've seen the Lord, and he's skeptical. So we say he's skeptical, he's doubting. I don't think Thomas is doubting. I don't think Thomas is skeptical. I think Thomas is thinking it through. And he has thought it through to such a degree that when next Sunday Thomas is there with them all, and they're all together in the upper room, and Jesus appears. He doesn't walk through walls. He appears among them. And immediately he says to Thomas, you were saying that you wanted to put your finger into the nail prints in my hands and your hand into the spear wound in my side. Okay, Thomas, I heard you say that. Put your finger here and put your hand here. And Thomas says to him, echoing the Shema, my Lord and my God. Because for Thomas, it has made sense. If Jesus, is, if Jesus Himself can conquer death, if Jesus can overcome death and do death to death, then everything that He's being say, been saying about Himself suddenly hangs together and makes sense and Thomas deliberately, summarizing the Shema, applies it directly to Jesus. And I want to say that John's writing of his gospel is shaped then by Thomas's confession in the beginning, at the end rather. And so what we find in the gospel as we look at it as a, as a big whole is that it begins and ends with these categorical statements about Jesus. Thomas's confession after the resurrection shapes John's beginning when he says, in the beginning, echoing Genesis, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in case you didn't get it, He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him is life, and the life was the light of men. And what he's doing there, he's making several things, several statements about the Son of God. He, he's calling Him the Word. He's calling Him life. He's calling Him light. He's saying that He shares the identity of God. He's saying that He is distinct from God. He is saying that He is the Creator as God is the Creator. He's saying He was in the beginning before there was anything. There was God. He is eternal. He's saying that He shares the identity of God. He was God. 
He's saying that He can do God things. All things were created by Him. And that He is life and He is light. Right at the very beginning, in that first chapter, we are introduced to the one who is Lord and God. And then in the second reference to God in John's gospel is, is in John chapter 1 and verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only begotten God who's at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So again, the Son who is the Word, the very speech of God, you can't disconnect the speech from the person he knows the mind of God. He speaks the Word of God. He is the Word. He is the very, the very uh, voice of God. He is the only begotten God. He's the one who's begotten by the Father, birthed by the Father without a beginning from all eternity. He is of God, from God, sharing the very nature of God. No one has ever seen God. The only begotten God that God has given to us, who's at the Father's side, He has made him known. A very fundamental statement. Now, it's with that in mind then that we think about what happens in John chapter 1. Because in John chapter 1, the one who is the Word and the light and the life and the Creator, who is face to face with God eternally, who's there in the beginning and who made everything, this one, we're told, is made incarnate. The Word was made flesh. We use the word incarnate from carne, meaning flesh. He, took, he was enfleshed with our flesh. And the incarnation is an event with a human body, flesh. The incarnation is an event with a subsequent history. He came and He tabernacled amongst us. The incarnation is an event with a revelatory significance. The Word, that is, the one who is revealing, communicating God to us, He was made flesh. And when the incarnation, that is, when the Son came, the first disciples realized that they had seen clearly what Moses, the great prophet, had only glimpsed from a distance. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, it's with that in mind then, you, you plunge further into John's gospel. For example, in John chapter 2, if you've got your Bible at home, we're just going to skim these things together this evening. But John chapter 2, at the end of it, uh, we, re we read at the very end of John chapter 2, verse 23, which, lead, which should really be chapter 3, uh, if you were dividing it correctly. Uh, after, after He committed all the signs and many believed in His name because they saw the signs, Jesus on His part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man because he himself knew what was in man. Jesus is unwilling to trust himself to those who believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. Why? Because he knew people. He didn't anyone, need anyone else to tell him what was going on in people. He knew man because he knew what was in everyone. Human beings put their faith in Christ, but Christ does not put His faith in human beings. And then we're introduced to this man, Nicodemus, who, like these people who believed in Him, believed in Him because of the signs 
that he performed. Nicodemus comes. He's a ruler of the Jews, verse 1 of chapter 3. He comes to Jesus, but Christ does not entrust himself to Jesus. Christ does not entrust himself to Nicodemus. And it's in that context that we have this little conversation that you find in chapter 3 and verse 12, as he's talking to Nicodemus about being born again and so on. We won't, we'll, we won't go into that this evening, but he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and we'll think about that some other time. But Jesus says this to him, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what's he talking about? He says that uh, heavenly things, heavenly things about the Son of Man who descended from heaven, are things about himself. He's saying to Nicodemus, you're here and I'm here, but I am at one and the same time in heaven. I'm here in my flesh talking to you about earthly things, but I'm in heaven in my divinity. I'm here in the flesh talking to you about being born I was born of a human mother, but I was born without ever departing from my Father. I'm with my Father in heaven, and I'm able to tell you heavenly things from an earthly perspective because I'm both in heaven in my divine nature and on earth talking to you in my human nature. Uh, this is what St. Augustine says, there you are, he was here and he was in heaven, he was here in the flesh. He was in heaven in His divinity, or rather, He was everywhere in His divinity, born of a mother without departing from His Father. And His never departing from His Father is what enables Jesus to cut death down. That's Augustine's phrase. He is always in union with His Father. It's because He's from heaven, you see, that when He's lifted up, He will accomplish the mission of salvation and whoever believes in Him can have eternal life. Death will be cut down because He has the power, innate power, as God in our flesh to achieve the mission of reconciling us to God. The Word does not change into flesh. He became flesh. His flesh is this new thing that manifests to us what He always was and is, the only begotten Son equal to the Father. And it's in His divine nature that He descended. It's His divine nature that qualifies Him to be our Savior. And as the Son of God, He's not external to God. The Son descended to earth, does divine things like overcome death, does human things like suffer death and be lifted up so that He might save us. Thomas Aquinas, one of the great doctors of the church, puts it like this, He came down from heaven without ceasing to be above, 
yet assuming a nature which is from below. And that reminds us of John chapter 1, at the very end of John chapter 1, when John deals in passing with the baptism of Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 29, for example, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 32, John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend like a dove, and it remained on him. And then verse 51, Jesus says to someone, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That recalls a vision, remember, that Jacob had when he slept at Bethel, O God of Bethel, by whose hand thy people still are led. On that night, Jacob saw heaven opened, and he saw a ladder that reached from heaven to earth, and the angels ascending and descending. And Jesus is saying to this man, I am the ladder. I am the one who is from heaven and of heaven and of earth, on whom the angels of God do their business, moving from from earth to heaven, taking worship to God, coming from heaven to earth, bringing help to man. I am the one who transcends and connects heaven where God is and earth where you are. It's a statement of Jesus who is at the height of it, the height of bliss within the Trinity above all worlds. And down on earth where there is trouble and effort and pain and darkness and death, and in the midst touching heaven and earth, is the Son, with the Father and with the baptized, with the believer. So we have this great picture then of the Son who is with the Father all the time. We, we move on in John's Gospel and we find another occasion when they were persecuting Jesus. In chapter 5, for example, and uh, He was doing some things on the Sabbath day. People were annoyed about that. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And in saying my Father works even till now, He's rejecting the opinion of people that say that God creates through the instrumentality of secondary causes. O Lord, You have done this for us through all Your works, Isaiah says. And so when he says, my Father is working and I am working, he's saying, what I'm doing is what my Father does. What my Father does, I do. We work together. We work together inseparably in all that we do. What God the Father does, God the Son does in everything that He is about. Again, he says this, my Father works even even until now, and so do I. And then he refers to both of these things, and he says, I'm going to my Father, when he talks to the disciples, he says, I'm going to my Father and your Father, my Father by nature, your Father by grace. John chapter 5, he says that it is through Him, the Son alone, that you and I come to see, know, and honor God the Father. Listen to Him. 
John 5, 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. To honor the Father is to worship the Father. Whoever does not worship the Son does not worship the Father. They are together in worship. You cannot think of one and worship Him without worshiping the other. You cannot worship the Father without worshiping the Son. You cannot worship the Son without worshiping the Father. They are together in receiving worship. Not only in receiving worship, but in receiving glory. In the Old Testament, God says that He will not share His glory with another. And yet the Son in John 17, when He's praying that last prayer before His arrest, says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. And again He says, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory I had with You before the world existed. So not only does the Father and the Son, do the Father and the Son receive worship, and that worship is inseparable. There are not two qualities of worship, one that we give the Son and one that we give the Father, but they share the same glory. Bruce Ware, who's a a theologian in the Southern Baptist Seminary, he says that there is a glory we give to the Father, and there is a lesser glory we give to the Son. In John 17, Jesus puts those two things together and He says this, Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory I had with You before the world was. The glory that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. There's only one glory. One glory. The glory of God. That's why Jesus goes on to say in John 12, whoever sees Me sees Him who sent Me. In John 14, whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. John 1, those who have seen the glory of God in Jesus Christ have seen the glory of the Father. And the Father delights to point us to the Son. John 5, 37, the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. Or John 8, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus bears witness to Himself. The Father bears witness to Jesus They are one in their communication concerning each other. And how do I come to know the Father? No one comes to know the Son, who alone reveals and makes known to the Father, unless the Father draws Him. John 6, 37, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Or verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or again, verse 65, I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by my Father. So which is it? Is it the Son? Is it the Father? It's the Father and the Son. They work inseparably. You cannot separate the Father and the Son in the work they do. It is the will of the Father that all who want eternal life must look to the Son. John 6, verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. To deny the Son or to hate the Son is to deny and to hate the Father. John 15. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. Now the Jews are listening to this. 
They're listening to this kind of language in which the son is all the time saying that he does the same things as his father does. On one occasion, in, in, uh, uh, they, 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 they were understanding what he was doing, and we're told in John chapter 5, verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that was bad, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I want you to notice there's a lot in modern commentaries and so on that, that say things like this, that the Son of God language is the language of the kings of Israel. It's the language of Israel even. It's the language of angels. The angels and Israel and kings were called sons of God. So when you see the Son of God language in the New Testament, Son of God language is only a language concerning the Messiahship of Jesus, the kingly, the kingly David's line, king, uh, kingly line that Jesus occupies. But that's not why they wanted to kill Jesus. It wasn't because he was saying, I am the Messiah. They were wanting to kill Jesus because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. If the title Son of God was only about the Messiah, there would be no question of being equal with God. But they understood what he was saying was something far greater, far deeper, far more extensive. He was making himself equal with God. And what struck them there in the conversation in chapter 5, very helpful, is that he was claiming to work inseparably, as we've been seeing, with God. My Father is working until now, and I am working. Who's working? The Father's working, and I'm working. And he expands this. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. They're in absolute harmony. They act as one, they think as one, they move as one, they, they have power as one. The only distinction is one is the Father and one is the Son, but they're entirely one in the work they do for us and our salvation. So Jesus goes on to say in chapter 5, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The Old Testament's taught us that one of the aspects of what it means to be God is that you have life and that you're the judge. Jesus says, I have life and I'm the judge. To give life and to judge are divine prerogatives belonging to the unique identity of the God of Israel, and Jesus claims to share that unique identity. In John chapter 6, he says this, the Father has life in Himself, and He has granted to the Son to have life in Himself. What does it mean to have life in Himself? To have life in oneself means that you are self-existent. You are dependent on no one and nothing. You have derived it from nowhere at no time. To have life in yourself is absolute existence. Jesus says God the Father has absolute existence. And from Him, I have absolute existence. 
But to have absolute existence does not mean that there is this absolute existence and then that absolute existence. To have absolute existence means the two things coincide absolutely at all times. There's no beginning. But in His begotten, being begotten by the Father, being birthed by the Father from all eternity, everlastingly, without a beginning, the Son shares the same life in Himself as the Father. Self-existent life. He has life in Himself. Now, one of the one of the ways in which this is anchored in John's gospel is the use of the divine name, I am. We started this evening by reading from Isaiah in which God says there, I am, I am He. There is none beside me, no other God beside me. I am, I, I am. It's literally a repetition of the words, I am. And Jesus picks up this language in the gospel of John. There are seven signs. There are seven metaphorical sayings of I am related to those signs. And there are seven absolute I am sayings in John's gospel. Those three sets of seven, three signs, three uh, metaphorical statements I am, and seven absolute I am sayings. The number seven, of course, stands for the perfection of creation and the perfection of this revelation of God. The seven signs are standard. We've, we've looked at them and studied them, and, and many of, the, of those signs become a kind of picture of the verbal language that's used. So, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, off the back of doing that, He says, I am the bread of life. When Jesus heals a blind man, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus says, I am resurrection and life. And there are others. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, the life. I'm the true vine. Those seven metaphorical I am statements related to His actions in the world. In, in the chapter on the, on the Good Shepherd, and the Good Shepherd imagery is the imagery of the God of the Old Testament. If you go to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, you'll find that God Himself, the Lord God of Israel, is the Shepherd of Israel. He is the one mentioned in Psalm 23, the, the, the Shepherd who, who leads us, and so on. The Lord is my Shepherd. And the Lord Jesus picks up that language of, and applies it to Himself. The Shepherd of Israel is, in fact, He. The Lord who is the shepherd of His people is, in fact, He, the Lord Jesus. And in John chapter 10, we find this conversation taking place where Jesus says uh, about His sheep, My sheep hear My voice. They, I know them. They follow Me. I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of My hand. And My Father who's given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. People latch on to that. My Father is greater than all, but not greater than Jesus. Jesus immediately adds, in case you thought that, immediately adds, 
I and the Father are one. And what he's saying to the believer is, your eternal security is so secure. To be in my hand is to be in my Father's hand. To be in my Father's hand is to be in my hand. You are doubly secure. You are absolutely secure. There is nothing that will happen to the believer. I will sustain you, preserve you, defend you, support you to the very end. Your security lies in God, the triune, in God, the Trinity. Not only that, but Jesus emphasizes that His activity, what He does, points to His identity. It points to His identity. There in chapter 10, it's a very fruitful chapter for consideration. If I am doing the works of my Father, then if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. The Father is in me and I'm in the Father. I'm doing the works the Father does, His kind of works. I'm doing the works of God, aren't I? Well, that's because I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. And again, we're told, they sought to arrest Him. This is why they killed Jesus. They killed Jesus because He claimed not simply to be the Messiah. He claimed to be God alone. And as God alone, what does He do? He saves and He forgives sins and He grants eternal life to people. And that activity points to His identity. So those are the metaphorical I am's. Then there are these absolute I am's. In John 4, when he's speaking to the Samaritan woman, the one speaking to you, I am. When he appears to the disciples, fear not, I am. In John 13, I've told you these things so that you will believe. I am. Unless you believe, I am, John 8, verse 24, unless you believe, I am, you will die in your sins. John chapter 8, 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know, I am. John 8 again, before Abraham was, I am. And then John 18, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Those are the seven absolute I am's in John's gospel. And in doing this, what is John telling us? He is saying that Jesus in his words and his action is claiming to the identity of the God of Israel who revealed himself to Moses. And when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? You say to them, said God to Moses. I am that I am, the self-existent God, the self-sufficient God. You can say everything about God when you think about Jesus, except that He's the Father. That's the message of John's gospel. That's why John says, I've written these things so that 
you would know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. So what we've done this evening is we've looked through John's gospel, and we've come to this great insight. I and the Father are one. By saying we're one, he's not just saying we're, you know, we're, we're agreed. He's saying they were one in essence. We're one in being. We share the same nature. There's only one God, one God, who in the New Testament, through the mission of the Son, first of all, shows us that this one God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Triune God, we worship You and thank You that through the missions of the Son and the Spirit, we come to see something of Your inner life and richness of Your inner life, the eternal bliss of that eternal witness between Father, Son, and Spirit. And we thank You that Jesus in John 17 prays that we one day would share something of that bliss, of that perfect witness, by our being in a creaturely way, in our creaturely way, brought to a place where we enjoy something of that that's appropriate to our creaturely status and that will ravish our hearts and will give us such bliss forevermore as we enjoy you forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.